What do you see when you look at your city? What do you see when you look at your church? What do you see when you look at yourself? Do you see nothing but broken piles of junk and rubble? Because when God looks at you, he sees a future and a hope. The Bible tells the story of Nehemiah, a man whose heart broke when he saw the ruined walls of Jerusalem. But in that rubble, he also saw hope. He saw the tools to rebuild. It's time to see our city the way God sees it. It's time to see our churches the way God sees them. It's time to see ourselves the way God sees us. It's time to rebuild. Well, welcome. Good to see you this weekend. Everybody doing all right? Doing okay? Having a good weekend so far? Good. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us uh, right now uh, from an off-site campus uh, here in the southeast or Midwest or on the West Coast. We're glad that you guys are along. Uh, also, those of you in the chapel in the warehouse and uh, on the internet, the internet campus, uh, glad to have you guys uh, with us too today. All right, so here's what I want to do. A little audience participation as we begin. That means we participate, okay? You got that? Campuses everywhere. I've got to fill in the blank. If you fill in the blanks, let's see how you do. All right, this is a test. If you snooze, especially in church, right? Okay, good, good. You've got to strike. All right, a few of you older ones understand that one. Got to strike. It's like an anvil kind of, I don't know what it means, but it's all right. All right, there comes a time when you've either got a fish You got to fish or get out of the boat. Well, that's not quite right, but that's, that's good, though. I'll bet that's, that's pretty good, yeah. Okay. That one's actually, uh, or cut bait, but that's, that's good, though, also, yeah. All right, good. One more. Um, <laughs> opportunity only knocks. Okay, good, good. Well, you know what? <laughs> there are... <laughs> There are times in all of our lives, aren't there, when we have those, those opportunity moments, you know, those times when maybe you've been praying about something or thinking about something, hoping for something, and here it is. It's a moment where you've got to make a decision. It might be, you know, buying a car or a house. It might be about a job. It might be even asking somebody out, you know. Uh, it could be uh, finding a parking space at Seacoast on Sunday morning. You know, just got a split second where you've got to make a decision because uh, it, it won't be there uh, for long. Um, today, what we're going to do is we're studying through the book of Nehemiah, and we're in week two, and uh, we're calling it Rebuild. If there's something in our lives or around us that needs to be rebuilt, we're kind of gearing it at that. And uh, Nehemiah is obviously the, the subject of the study, and Nehemiah has one of those go big or go home, one of those fisher cut baits, one of those opportunity only knocks once. He has one of those moments, and he's got to be ready for it, and fortunately he is. So what we want to do is we want to study that, and uh, kind of in our own lives, uh, how, how do you prepare for a moment like that when you're rebuilding? How, how are you ready when opportunity uh, strikes? So just as a way of review, last week we left the hero of our story, Nehemiah, uh, weeping and praying over the ruins of Jerusalem. If you remember, uh, 
Jerusalem had been torn down uh, by the Babylonian Empire, and uh, the temple had been destroyed, the walls had been destroyed, a group of, uh, and then the Jews had been taken away into captivity for a significant period of time. And uh, a group of Jews were allowed to go back, and they rebuilt the temple, but there were no walls around the city. Because there were no walls around the city, the people were defenseless. They were discouraged. They were demoralized. And Nehemiah's brother uh, comes from a 1,000 miles away, and he tells him about the condition of the people there. Some of them are his friends. Some of them are, no doubt, family. And he is heartbroken over their circumstance and their situation. And he begins to pray. And in the midst of the, the prayer time, God uh, challenges him to be a part of the solution and not just be concerned about it. And how often does God do that with us? When something burdens our hearts, we find that we're a part of the solution. God wants to use us to rebuild something that's broken. Last week, we also talked about the fact that those walls that are torn down in Jerusalem are symbolic of walls torn down in our lives. We talked about walls in our cities being torn down. And and we talked about walls in our churches being torn down. And probably most importantly, we talked about walls in our lives being torn down. If you didn't get to be here last week, I hope you'll pick up the podcast and kind of bring yourself up to date because I think there's some things that God wants to say to each one of us. And some of us can really relate to this idea of uh, areas in our life that are damaged, that are maybe in ruins, uh, where we're open to attack, and sometimes we even feel like we have no defense. That, what, what can I do? How, this comes at me over and over and over again. How can, I, how can I deal with it? Well, here's good news. When you cry out to God, when you pray and cry out to God like Nehemiah does, uh, you can expect an answer. You can expect an answer. It, it, it may be that an opportunity for change for you is just on the horizon. Uh, the answer may be in a different package than you thought it would come. It may take longer than you thought that it would take, but you can be sure that God will answer prayer. And that's what happened with Nehemiah. And uh, we find Nehemiah at an opportunity moment, one of those, hey, I got to make a decision moments in uh, chapter two. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to just study verse by verse through about 12 chapters, or 12 chapters. <laughs> it'll feel like it at times, but it'll be actually 12 verses today. And there's just so much packed into them, so much. I'm confident that everybody here will get something uh, out of this for your life. Uh, we may not get through the whole outline sheet because we've got a certain amount of time we're going to be here. Uh, so if that's a bothersome to you, I will pray for you afterwards and give you the fill in the blanks. We'll do the best that we can. Okay, what we're going to do is we're going to study Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through about 11, but we pick it up, actually, the last half of the last verse of chapter 1, because it really fits with chapter 2. Did that confuse anybody? That's where we're going. So if you have a Bible, you can pick it up there, or uh, if you have an outline sheet, uh, the notes are on the outline sheet, and the verses actually are. So let's pick up chapter 1, verse 11. He says, in those days, in what days? When his brother came, the walls are down. He said, in those days, basically my job was, I was a, the king's cupbearer. I want to talk about that just for a minute so you kind of know uh, what he did, what, what that was about. What, what does it mean to be the king's cupbearer? Well, actually, it was a pretty dangerous job. 
He works for a foreign king. He's, he's a Jew in Babylon. He works for a foreign king that basically everybody wants to kill, okay? And so the, probably the primary means of assassination in those days were to poison somebody's food, especially their drink. And so Nehemiah's job is to taste the wine before the king gets it. He's the last person that tastes it before the king gets it. Now, just on a side note, one of the guys that kind of serves with us, this morning somebody brought shrimp and grits for me this morning uh, to, to have a little bit to eat between services and before services. And he said to me, he said, I was your cupbearer today. He said, he said, I tasted it and it's okay. So that was, I, I thanked him. What a servant. What, a, what, a, what an incredible servant. So, so Nehemiah's job is to taste the king's wine before the king gets it. And if he dies, it's bad wine. We're not going to drink that wine today. If he lives, the king drinks and everybody lives happily ever after. It's kind of like Russian roulette with adult beverages is what it is. And it's a dangerous job, but it has great bennies. I mean, he gets to live in the king's palace, gets room and board, all this kind of all this kind of stuff. It's got a bit, of, a bit of a downside to it, but if you like adventure, it's a great gig. And that's what Nehemiah does. He's, he's really an important guy, seriously an important guy in the kingdom. How does he get that job? You, you say, well, why would anybody want that job? No, there were a lot of people that aspired to that job. How did he get that job as a foreigner, as a Jew in a Babylonian culture? Well, basically, he gets it by being humble and being a faithful servant to the king. The king can trust him. He trusts him with his life. Nehemiah, part of his job is to go out and decide what vineyard that the wine comes from. I mean, it's more than just sitting there with a cup. He's got a pretty big time job, and he gets it because he's loyal and he's faithful in service to the king. He's a number two guy. He's never gonna be king. Okay? It's just not in the, in the books for him. He's not going to be king. He's a number two guy. And yet, God uses him in a powerful way. And he doesn't use the excuse of, hey, I'm just number two, in order not to do what God has for him. See, some of us are not in the driver's seat. Many of us are not. You don't own the company. You're, maybe you're not, you know, even number one in your department or maybe it's in your family or whatever it happens to be. And, uh, and, 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 and yet, God is calling you to a significant area of rebuilding something. Maybe he wants you to rebuild the culture in the team that you're a part of or rebuild something in your family. And yet, you're not number one. And uh, so, you use it as an excuse. You know, I don't have any power. Nobody around here listens to me. I'll just wait till I'm in charge. Well, there's a couple of problems with that. Number one, you may never be in charge. You may never be in charge. You know, God graces us with whatever gifts that he does. And for some people, uh, he lifts them up as primary leaders. And, and that's just who they are and what they do. Other people, uh, he, he says, you know what? What I want you to do is serve a primary leader somewhere. And you kind of are a number two person or a number three person, and it's okay, it's who God made you to be. In fact, if God made you to be one thing and you try to be something else, it's just going to be a mess everywhere. I know uh, before I, uh, my family came here and started Seacoast, um, I tried to be 
a number two leader, just uh, someone that would serve uh, uh, someone else. And uh, I loved it. I mean, I, I, I felt like I was doing a good job. Uh, I was uh, trying to do it humbly and try to do it faithfully and, and try to do it well. And I remember when the primary leader called me in one day and he said, um, we're, this is not working. And I said, what do you mean this isn't working? I'm trying to be faithful. He said, you're very faithful. I said, well, I'm trying to be loyal. You're very loyal. I'm trying to do a good job. He said, you're doing a good job. Well, what's the problem? He said, you're driving me crazy. You're just making me nuts. He said, you have got to lead something because the principle is if you're a primary leader and you serve too long in another area, you're going to drive everybody around you crazy. I just see it all of the time. Uh, some, in fact, some churches label it rebellion, and a lot of times it's not. It's just somebody that's a primary leader. They want to make a better mousetrap. They're not in a position to make a better mousetrap, but they, but they try, and it just makes everybody crazy. On the other side, you have people who are, they're, they're geared and they're wired, and God has gifted them to be a support person or to be a number two leader or whatever. In fact, I was talking to somebody recently who I was asking them, are you going to step into a number one position, their particular deal? And he said, no, I really don't think so. He said, it's taken me 40-some years, but I've finally figured out that I function best as a support to a primary leader. And uh, I said, that's great. That's awesome. When you figure that out, it's a good thing. And here's the danger of that is if you're in that position, you may have friends, especially spouses, who will come to you and try to get you to move into a higher position. You know, you, you've been working there a long time. You need to be the boss. You've been in that ministry for a long time. You need to do it for yourself. And there are some times that that's the case. But if that's not where God's wired you up, you know what? And it's okay that God hasn't wired you up that way. Because if everybody was the primary leader, we'd get nothing done. Nothing. If everybody was a secondary leader, we wouldn't know where to go. Okay? God has sprinkled it just the right way, and so you need to figure out, listen, this is who God's called me to be. And, and it takes a while, and it takes some experimentation, but be, be satisfied with that and function within that. Well, Nehemiah is a support leader. He faithfully serves God, and God presents him with an opportunity to be a part of something significant, um, whether that's in in, uh, in, in so, and so that's a good thing, and we could talk a lot about that. But Nehemiah is a cup builder on a mission, and he doesn't use the fact that he's not in charge to do something significant. And, uh, and, and you may be a secondary leader. Don't use your position to say, um, I can't do anything significant because God works through everybody and he has significant things to do. And, so, and that, so that's what he does through Nehemiah. He's a cup bearer, but he's a cup bearer on a mission. So let me give you three things, if we get to all three, uh, that it takes to be a successful, motivated rebuilder. If you're going to rebuild something in your own life, if you're going to rebuild something in your family, in your spiritual life, maybe a business, whatever it happens to be, here's three things you're going to need to master and do well. Okay? The first one is you're going to have to know how to pray fervently. Pray fervently. That's number one. And that's something that Nehemiah knows about. Let's look at uh, verse one in chapter two. It says, early the following spring in the month of Nisan. Say Nisan together. Nisan, Nisan is not a car. At least not in that time. Okay, it's a car today. In that time, it was a month, and it was actually related to the month of April. It'll be important in just a second. I'll show you why. Early in the spring, in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, 
I was serving the king his wine. I had never before appeared sad in his presence. Okay, why is Nisan important? Because there's a different month that's stated in chapter one. If you went back to chapter one, we talked about last, last week it was in the, in the fall, and it was probably November or December. Um, and that, th- there was at least about a four-month gap between chapter one and chapter two. So what, what difference does that make? Here's the question. What's, ne- what's Nehemiah doing during that four-month gap? We, le- we left him. In chapter one, he's praying. In chapter two, he tells of a specific incident. So what's he doing? One of the things he's doing for four months is praying fervently. He's got a burden. God's given him a burden for his city, and he's praying fervently. Fervently. Have you ever prayed fervently for four months? How about four days? How about four hours? Anybody ever prayed fervently for four minutes? Four minutes. It's going four minutes once, (laughs) twice. Okay, there we go, right over here. That is a long time. How do you pray fervently for four months? I'm going to tell you how in just a few minutes as a part of this message. But for right now, let's just say Nehemiah was praying fervently. And you know what? You can, be, you can be praying in the will of God, which he was, but he hadn't gotten an open door or an answer yet. You can be praying in the will of God for your family, for your kids, for your business, for your spiritual life, something that you know is the will of God. You can be praying fervently and you haven't gotten it yet. Because you haven't gotten it doesn't mean that God doesn't want it for you. How many of you know there's a difference between God's will and God's timing? They work together. Have you ever been in a hurry when God wasn't? Okay, sure, we all have. And, and, so, and so what you need to do is do what Nehemiah did, and that's persevere in prayer. You've got to learn to pray fervently and to pray, as my grandpa used to say, pray through. Just pray, keep praying until, until you get the answer. And so that's what Nehemiah did. He'd been praying per, uh, uh, with uh, perseverance and fervently. And, uh, and, and then he said, one day I was serving the king as wine. I had never before appeared sad in his presence. Now, what's up with that? Because to work for the king and doing what Nehemiah had to do, you had to be happy around the king. The king didn't want any sad faces, okay? You had to be happy. The king had a fake it till you make it policy. Basically, this is the reason is because um, this is such an important position that if the king sensed that Nehemiah was off emotionally, that he wasn't, you know, that maybe he was distracted or whatever, he would suspect that he was a part of a plot to kill him. King's paranoid for good reason. And so, and so he'd judge by the emotions of Nehemiah as he came in. And Nehemiah had to be happy. Have you ever worked for a boss like that? Where you had to be happy? Oh, it's wonderful. I love working here. It's the best day. You know, and all that kind of baloney. Well, that's kind of where Nehemiah was. What if you weren't happy? The king would kill you. King would kill you. So that's a great incentive to be happy. So Nehemiah is happy most of the time. But this day, he's not, and he can't fake it. And out of the blue, it says, so the king asks me, why are you looking sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Ooh. This, I, I don't know if you, do you get how crucial this moment is for Nehemiah? I mean, this is like, 
hey, if my answer isn't right here, my head gets lopped off. He's sad. I mean, he, every other day he's been able to, to look okay, but this day he can't. Why not? Because he's worn out from praying. His heart is sad. About what? The city. He's sad about Jerusalem. The walls are down. The church can't function. The people are broken. It's the same burden that Jesus had for Jerusalem when he would pray. And he would pray and he would cry. And he would say they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're, without, they're like sheep without a shepherd. See, God wants our hearts to be broken for our cities, whatever city you happen to be in. Why? Because the walls are down. Because there are things in the city that aren't right. Because there are people that need to meet Jesus. There are families that are hurting. There are hopeless that need hope. There are churches that need to grow because they're the light of the world and the hope of the world. So Nehemiah is sad. And the king says, hey, big guy, why so sad? What's going on? And here's Nehemiah's response, verse 2. Then I was terrified. I think I would be too. Okay, I like that. I like the fact that he admits that he's terrified. We see, you know, we see these heroes of the Bible as being almost like, you know, superheroes with superpowers, and they're never scared. You know, kind of like Batman on steroids kind of things. And they're not. They're normal guys like you and I. He's afraid. I, when I read that, I went, praise God, I'm okay. Because there are some times I'm terrified. Some of you guys scare me, okay? I have to stand before God someday and answer for how I did with you. Read the Bible. Would that make anybody scared? You know, 20,000 people, part of Seacoast, that would call this their home. And, I, and I've got to answer to God for that. You know, I, I, sometimes I think, what if I screw this one up? Or what if, what if somebody figures out I'm really not that good? You know, it's kind of like Oz behind the curtain, you know. <laughs> Terrified. Terrified, just a little bit. Just a little bit. But you know what? He didn't let his fear stop him. Here's what he did. But he replied. In other words, you know, courage isn't the absence of fear, but it's moving ahead in spite of fear. I had somebody in the, in the foyer just uh, tell me just a minute ago, she's a cardiologist, maybe in this, no, she was in the last service. She said, do you know the, the root word, the Latin word for uh, courage? It's heart. It's heart. It's heart. He had heart. And, uh, and, he, and, he, and he moved ahead. And so, okay, get the picture again. Nobody's supposed to be sad. He's burdened over the city. The king sees the situation and says, tell me what's up. Why are you sad? This is probably the most important speech he's going to give his, of his life. And here's what he says. Long live the king. How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. So he, he, uh, he does something very smart, really, in the, in, the, in the oriental culture of the area. Ancestors are very, very important. And he's appealing to the king and saying, you know what, my, the city where my ancestors, the city where my people are buried is destroyed. You know, there's something about, there's something about your hometown. There's something about your home city. You know, a few weeks ago, um, there was a terrible disaster in Denver. You guys aware of it in Aurora where a guy went into a movie theater and killed a bunch of people and all of that. Well, that's, I mean, that's within blocks of where my wife grew up. That's our city. We were glued for, for about 24 hours. We were glued to 
the television probably in a, probably in an inappropriate way of, of, that anybody around here would be because that was home. That was our home city. I can remember um, before we started Seacoast Church, um, we went to Denver because I wanted to plant a church there. And I, I drove around the city and I prayed over the city. I was praying things like, God, my friends that I grew up with in school, um, you know, they, I had 160 at least acquaintances that were kicked out of school right before our graduation for a big drug bust at our, at our school. A lot of those were real close friends of mine. I know friends that throughout the years that um, their lives are torn down, their, their walls are broken. And I said, God, use me. I, I want to plant a church here. And for whatever reason, the providence of God, it was a clear answer, no, and God opened up the doors here. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. But every time I go back to Denver, I still drive around, not asking him to use me necessarily, or certainly not to move. But I ask him, God, I, I pray for this city. I pray that churches will raise up. In fact, there are some friends of mine that have churches in Denver, and I said, I want you to know I'm living vicariously through you. I want you to raise up churches for my friends that need Jesus, for my friends that their kids need Jesus, and their grandkids now are coming along. And uh, there's just something about the hometown. This is our hometown now. When we came to Charleston, I wasn't really that familiar with it. I hadn't been here that much. And one of the first things I did when we decided that we were going to plant a church in Mount Pleasant is I would get in my car and I would drive the neighborhoods here. And I'd pray over the neighborhoods. A lot of times I'd do it at night. People wouldn't think I was crazy. Some people prayer walk, I prayer drive. It just, it's just easier. And I would pray, go through the neighborhoods. And I'd pray over the neighborhoods and I would say, God, we, we want people from every one of these neighborhoods who need you. I, 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 I want to love them like you do. I want to see them like Jesus uh, does. And um, not long ago, um, I really felt convicted that I wasn't doing that that much anymore. That I wasn't really driving through the neighborhoods. I started to do it again. Because I, I don't know that I had the, the, the passion. I mean, the, when we first started, you've got this You've got this passion. This is why we're here. And then we grow and we grow and we grow and we get a national reputation and international. And, and then I, I, you, you, I would come in here into this building and pray over the chairs and, and realize that, man, there's full, full houses. I mean, people got to get here early at, at, uh, on Sunday mornings at the Long Point campus just to get a chair. And, um, and I found that my heart had drifted some from the original passion, the original passion. There are still thousands of people who their walls are broken down. Their marriages, their kids, their businesses. And I ask God, would you renew a passion in me? A passion for this city like I had at the beginning. And I believe that God is doing that. And I want to ask you, do you have a passion for your neighborhood? Do you ever drive through your neighborhood or even coming home from work and, and wonder, I wonder how many walls are broken down in this place? Or are we just thinking about us and what we're doing in our day? And I want to challenge you. If you don't see anything else today, take a look at, at how Nehemiah prayed and he was passionate over his city. And he pours out his heart to the king. And he says, this is why I'm sad. And this is a key moment. There are several key moments in this conversation. 
But now, if you, can you just get the quiet as Nehemiah's heart's thumping? He's told him why he said, what's the king going to do? Is he going to call the executioner in, kill him, and get somebody else to do his job? Here's what the king says. The king asked, how can I help you? How can I help you? Did, did you know what? There may be somebody that you're afraid to tell your story or you're afraid to face or whatever, and it just might be that God is already at work in the king in your situation. That God has, has divinely orchestrated the conversation that you've got to have tomorrow or next week. That's what happened with Nehemiah. God had orchestrated this thing. It was a scary thing, but the king then asks, how can I help you? Then what does Nehemiah do? He prays again. It says, with a prayer to the God of heaven. You say, well, I thought he just got done praying for four months. Why does he need to pray again? Because if you're going to be a successful rebuilder, you've got to pray a lot. How much? 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, you must pray without ceasing. Can you say that together? Pray without ceasing. What does that mean? That means you pray all the time. That means you pray. How do I pray all the time? I don't have time to pray all the time. How can I pray all the time? You know what? We've got, we've got, we make prayer a whole lot more intimidating than it really is. You think, well, you know what, if I have to pray all the time, how am I going to eat? How am I going to work? When will there be time to cheer for the Gamecocks and the Broncos and the Cubs? Well, I think we make it too complicated. I'm going to dummy down prayer for you real quick, okay? I'm going to give you the executive summary, Prayer 101. Here it is. God is our dad. We are his kids. We can talk to him anytime we want about anything. That's it. That's how you pray without ceasing. God is your dad. We're, our ki- we're his kids. You can talk to him about anything you want. Sometimes it's short conversations. Sometimes it's long, pour your heart out, heart out conversations. And you know what? People are different in how they approach that. I, I can remember people trying to teach me how to pray, and everybody had to pray the same way, you know. You got to get down on your knees. I never did that. I mean, I did some, but that hasn't become my habit. You know how I pray? I walk around. I walk around. If I'm studying for a message and I get stuck on something, I just get up and I start walking around. I pray. I walk around the neighborhood. I walk, I walk around the building here. Before I come out on the weekends to preach, there's a black curtain right there where Oz stays behind it. And what I'm doing is I'm just pacing back and forth praying. Just That's how I do it. This week I had an answer to prayer that was incredible. Uh, I'd been praying for something for, uh, for a couple of months. And uh, and uh, so I was uh, out west with my other job as art president and uh, also uh, uh, overseer on, on some churches. And uh, one of my stops was in Colorado. And since I had, I had about four hours before I had to fly out, and so I took a car and went up into the mountains and saw the beautiful scenery and all of that. And I I'd said to the Lord before I went, I said, I'm going to take this next four hours and I'm going to be real focused on what I've been praying about for a couple of months. Now, you've got to understand, focus for me isn't just shutting myself into a room and praying. That's one way to do it. That's just not how I do it. Uh, I, I have attention things that when I get closed into a room, I can't concentrate. I've got to be out where things are going on, all this kind of stuff. And so I went out and I started taking pictures uh, uh, in Colorado. In fact, I got a good picture of an outhouse. Take a look at this. This was during a fervent time of prayer. You know, but anyway, that's just how I pray. And, uh, 
And, and so I'm taking pictures, and I'm just talking to God, saying, God, you know the situation. Here it is. And I got a sense of peace in my heart, but I didn't have an answer. And what was incredible, what was incredible is as I was driving back down that mountain, I got a text from somebody on a different subject, but in the text was the answer that I've been praying for for two months. Now, it had nothing to do with that person or that, t- it's just that in the, I, in fact, it took me a minute and I went, oh my God, you're answering me in that text. And you know what? It was a no answer. It wasn't a yes answer. I would have liked a yes answer. That was what I was praying for. But I'm old enough in the Lord to praise God for a no. How have you know that a no sometimes is good? It's good to know a no, okay? And so it was a no, and I got an answer to prayer. But just in casual conversation to God. And for me, for some people, it's good to kneel down. I just never have. I'm kind of grateful for that now, because now when I do kneel in the mornings to put my socks on, it's harder and harder to get up. And so, but I mean, it's good to kneel. Some lay on their, their back. Some walk around. Just pray. Just talk to God. People are different. I talk to my grandkids. It's like, I, I kind of look at that as kind of what God does with me. Some of my grandkids are real short and to the point with their talking. Hey, Papa, can I have a treat? Let me tell you the, the secret. Let me tell you the secret to being a, a, a good grandparent is to have a, um, a candy drawer or a treat bag or both. We have both uh, because here's the deal. They love whoever feeds them. They're kind of like animals that way. I'm figuring it out. <laughs> And so some of them, the, the gist of their conversation with me is strictly, can I have a treat? And they'll come back later, can I have another treat? And it's okay, it's okay, I love it. Others of them just love to talk, especially two of my little females. They just love to talk. Rylan, three years old, she's one of the twins, and she just, you know, it just constantly talks. Greta Kate just loves to talk. That's how I had GK, I call her GK. I had her in my car. Actually, her daddy was at a park, and uh, uh, he was taking care of the, the two of them, and, and I went over to the park to see him, and, and, um, and uh, we were going to go get something to eat, and I said, uh, can I have GK in the car? I've got one of those little, uh, uh, I don't know, bucket things or whatever that you strap them into in the back seat, and so, and so uh, car seat, that's what it is, car seat, and, uh, and so I took GK three miles, get this, three miles in the car, so what did GK want to do? She wanted to talk. Papa, and it's not like I could be not real focused on this. It was like, Papa, 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 Papa. She'll say it until you say what, GK? And then she'll say, and that day she wanted to sing. And she wanted me to sing with her, and she wanted to sing the ABC songs. How many of you know the ABC songs? Let's sing it together. Can we do that at the campuses? A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q R S T U N V W X Y N Z. Big ending. Now I know my ABCs. Won't next time? Won't you sing with me? And that good. Give yourself a hand. Okay. Why did I do that? So you'll remember. Here's what she did. Now, she sings an abbreviated version of that. She, she disincludes some of the less important letters and just kind of does it. And uh, she sang, she sang that song 14 times in three miles. I counted them, this is no exaggeration, 14 times in three miles. And between every one, she would say, Papa, sing with me this time. 14 times. 
14. That's why I know it so well. That's why I wanted to sing it for you. It's because I've practiced it 14 times. Now, I'm her grandpa. I'm her grandpa. Do you think, did I get tired of it? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not God, okay? I'm not God. I'm just her grandpa. God doesn't get tired of it. God loves when you talk to him. Everybody should pray a lot. Pray without ceasing. Learn how to pray a lot. Some people, your prayers will be short and sweet most of the time. It'll be mostly about the treat basket, okay? God, I need this. Lord, I want that. That's okay. You know, that's okay. Jesus taught us to pray, give us our daily bread. That's the treat basket. Okay, so pray about that. That's good. Others of us, you're going to have longer conversations. In fact, all of us need to learn at times to have longer ones. Pull your heart out. Some people, that's all they do. They're like GK and Ryland. They just want to talk and talk and talk to God. And we call those intercessory prayer warriors, okay? And they're on our prayer teams. They love, love talking to God just in, in extended times. That's great. And so just, just figure it out. Some people say, you know, God's too busy. My prayers aren't that important. Really? You know, I'm a busy guy, but uh, I always take time for my kids. Nehemiah throws up a big prayer, a, a quick prayer. He's been praying for four months. And then he says, I threw up, I threw up a prayer. I threw, it up. I threw up a prayer to God. And, uh, and he makes the ask, and we got to hurry on because I got two more points that won't take nearly as long. Uh, it says, with a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, if it please the king, and if you're pleased with me, your servant, send me Judah to rebuild, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. The king with the queen sitting beside him asked, how long will you be gone? When will you uh, return? So <laughs> It, it, basically, the king's going, how much time do you need? Now, it doesn't say right here. He did tell him here, but later he tells us. You know how much time, time off he asked for? 12 years. Try that with your boss. <laughs> I like some time off. How about a sabbatical? Paid, 12 years. Uh, you, and I want you to pay for it. We you do that? Uh, what did the king do? It says, after I told him how long I'll be gone, the king agreed to my request. Can you imagine Nehemiah? Yes! He's dancing around. Yes, yes, yes. The king said yes. Well, guess what? The king's going to say yes to you at some point. It may be your boss. It may be a family member. It may be God himself. But at some point, with a passionate prayer, the king's going to say yes. The next question is, will you be ready when the king says yes? Because uh, not only does a successful rebuilder have to pray fervently, but the second thing they've got to do is plan diligently. They've got to plan diligently. You've got to be ready with a plan when the opportunity knocks. What's your plan? What if, what if uh, the king would have said, yes, what's your plan? Nehemiah would have said, well, we're still praying about it. Opportunity knocks once. What if Nehemiah would have said, well, we're just going to follow the leading of the Lord. We're just going to let the Lord lead us. You know what? Hope is not a plan. How of you know that? It's not a plan. You've got to have a plan. If you're starting a business, if you're losing weight, if you're wanting to grow as a Christ follower, if you want to be a better spouse, whatever it is, you've got to have a plan. A dream without a plan is a never-ending nightmare. So Nehemiah's plan in the next verse. I also said to the king, if it please the king, let me have letters addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River 
instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on my way to Judah. And please give me a letter addressed to Asaph, the manager of the king's forest, instructing him to give me timber. I will need it to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress, for the city walls, and for a house for myself. And the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. And when I came to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, I delivered the king's letters to them. The king, I should add, had sent along army officers and horsemen to protect me. He thought this through, and if the king said yes, he was going to have a plan. He had a plan. I, I can imagine that, that he was just waiting for this. And maybe he had it tucked in his, in his robe somewhere and said, the king's going to say yes, I've got my plan ready, just let me know the time. So how do, you, how do you make a plan? Let me give you five things real quick. We'll just go through them that Nehemiah did and that you can do in making a plan. Number one, think it through. Think it through. Proverbs 13, 16 says, wise people think before they act. Fools don't and even brag about their foolishness. Do you know anybody like that? That's what Nehemiah was doing for four months is he was praying and planning, thinking it through. Secondly, you decide what you want. The king asked Nehemiah directly, what do you want? Nehemiah knew, would you? If someone was to ask you right now, what do you want? Do you know? Do you have a goal? Do you have a goal? A goal is what I want to be. What do I want to do? What do I need to have in order to get there? Then number three, set a deadline. Set a deadline. The king asks, how long is it going to take? See, a goal without a deadline is just a pipe dream. It'll never happen. It'll never happen. You have to have a, by this date, this is what we're going to do. Um, how long will it take? Number four, anticipate problems. Um, Proverbs 23 and verse 22, verse 3 says, a prudent person foresees danger and takes precautions. The simpleton goes blindly on and suffers the consequences. Nehemiah asked for protection. He asked the king for protection. Why? Because he knew that there'd be problems out there. So you got to ask, what can hold this back? What could go wrong? See, successful rebuilders focus on solving problems tomorrow's problems. They anticipate things that nobody else is even thinking about. And then number five, you got to count the cost. Count the cost. Don't even begin until you count the cost, Jesus said in Luke 14, 28. Everything in life has a price tag. Nehemiah gives the king a shopping list. How does he know what to ask for? How does he know the name of the guy that owns the king's forest? He counted the cost. He did his homework. He was ready. And then he asked. Don't ever be afraid to ask. Don't ever say no for the king. Do you ever do that? Oh, they'll never do it. They won't go for this. I just won't. Don't say no for somebody else. Who knows but what God is going before you. God has wonderful opportunities for you, but you've got to be ready when they come. Rebuilders pray. They plan. Oh, we're going to fill in that last blank. They act courageously. They act courageously. At some point, you've got to quit praying, quit planning, and you got to go for it, believing that God is on your side. It's going to take courage. Why? Because rebuilding is hard work. What you're called to is going to be tough. Let me tell you another reason. Not everybody's going to be as excited about what you're trying to do as you are. Look at the next verse. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard of my arrival, they were very displeased that someone had come to help the people of Israel. Now, I'm not going to say much about these guys right now. We'll talk about them later in the series, other than to say that they were sent by the ministry of discouragement. Do you know anybody sent by the ministry of discouragement? Don't point. Don't point. 
okay? Well, if you decide to rebuild something that's broken or take ground that hasn't been taken yet, I'll guarantee you, you will get a visit from people from the Ministry of Discouragement. We had them here in the early years, probably still have a few. Well, you can't do that here. Who do you think you are anyway? Here, the next one is, is first sermon I ever preached at Freeport when I pastored there. Seven words that will kill a, a church. Seven words that will kill anything. We've never done it that way before. You'll have people from the Ministry of Discouragement that will tell you, you, you just can't do it that way. Or, you, you know, it's never been done or it'll never last. But let me tell you this. You can measure the size of a person's heart by how much it takes to discourage them. If you're gonna rebuild you're going to need an extra measure of courage. So where do you get that kind of courage from? You get it from God, your Father. From conversations with your Father. From promises of your Father. Successful rebuilders don't spend a lot of time worrying about, what if this doesn't work? They pray, they plan, and they act as if, as, as if the outcome is inevitable. So I want to bring it down to you. What, do you, what needs rebuilding in your life, in your family, in your business, in your team, in your circle of influence, spiritual life, your marriage, whatever it is? Let me ask you this. Are you praying about it? Are you fervently talking to God, making it a matter of prayer every day? What's your plan? What's your plan? The king's going to say yes. Will you be ready? What if God opens the door? Will you be ready? Or maybe you've started. Let me ask you this. Who's discouraging you? Who's discouraging you? Who, who are you saying, I can't do it because they're in the way? They're discouraged. No, 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 no. You serve a God who is more than able. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. I want to challenge you. You be a rebuilder. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our time together. I thank you for your word. I thank you for an example of Nehemiah who, uh, who prayed and who moved against his fear and courage, who planned, who acted. And God, today there are many of us that we need to have that same type of diligence and that same type of courage. And I pray that in the next few minutes that you would stir our hearts and deal with our hearts. In your name we pray, amen.